Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. We're going to start reading at verse 5 and reading through verse 13. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then turn with me back to Psalm 139. You might wonder as to the connection between these two passages, but hopefully during the message that connection will become clear. We're going to start reading at verse 5 of Psalm 139, and we're going to read to the end of the psalm. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, for night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you, you, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. 
my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Once again, we go to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word. And as we consider the kingdom of God and all its righteousness, we just pray that you bless us as we hear your word and ask your blessing on Dr. DeYoung as he brings this to us through the preaching of the word. Just bless him abundantly as he brings this to us, we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Some weeks ago, when Mr. Veldman, asked, Mr. Veldman asked if I would lead the worship service this morning, I was at a particular point in my life where I knew almost immediately, this is what I need to pray. This is where I need to preach. I need to do something with that second petition in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? How are we to understand that? Over the last several weeks, going back into the summer, we as a nation have been torn apart in so many ways. There has been so much intense conflict, so much hatred, so much debate, so much coverage on the news. And now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to do what they call a midterm election. It's very important. But our country, the United States, is really no longer united. In so many ways, we are the divided states. When you look at our country, when you look at the various activities going on in different parts of the country, there's deep, deep division. And we might say, well, this is just basically a battle between Democrats and Republicans. No. That's part of it. But that's not the whole of it. That's not the essence of it. We might say it's it's just a conflict between liberals and conservatives. 
Well, that again, that's part of it. We might say it's a contest between Western Michigan and Hollywood. That's a part of it too. When I try to analyze where we are as a nation, what we need to do as a nation in response, I have to conclude that we are in a time of intense spiritual warfare. There is intense spiritual warfare that grips our nation. Right now, this week, maybe next couple of weeks, there's going to be a lull. But watch out. It will soon erupt again. We're going to see all kinds of animosity, all kinds of hatred spewing forth. And then I ask, all right, if this is spiritual warfare, how do I respond? What do I do? I can do like so many people, choose to ignore it. I'll wait for a good day and go play golf. Or I'll wait for the hockey season to start. Or I'll watch the World Series. I, and when they come on the television, I turn it off. I don't want anything to do with this. That's not the stand that you and I as Christians have to take. The song that we just sang is a call to action. Arise, O men of God. Stand firm. Do something. But what? I thought it would be well to look at the creedal statements that we read a while ago. A lot of people, good people, and some who are marginal are saying, you have to pray. Thankfully, our president, our vice president, a lot of other people are saying, as a nation, we have to pray. And then they conclude, so help me God, or so help us God. But then you wonder how deep that is. Is that just a political cliche? So we go to the Heidelberg Catechism. We go to this question about the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. And I want to just go through that quickly with you again. The way the Heidelberg puts it, rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. The way the Heidelberg puts it, this is something very personal that each one of us, you and I, have to pray and have to understand what that means. Those are not just idle words. Those are not just ancient words. Those are words meant for each one of us. God is saying to us through Jesus Christ and through the Heidelberg Catechism, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ has to start with each one of us. It has to start in my life. I personally, daily, have to remember that I have a king. I live in his kingdom. I know that the king controls and rules the world in which I live. 
and I have to bow the knee to him. I have to recognize that he is sovereign over all of life and over my life. It has to be very personal. But also, if you recall the introduction to the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave that we read earlier, it also has to be very private. Jesus is very explicit. And he's saying, don't go out on the street corner and stand out there so everybody can hear you and say, Lord, please. No, no, no. Don't be like the hypocrites and come up with all kinds of flamboyant, flashy words, big expressions. No, don't do that. Don't put your prayers on Facebook. It goes all over the world. And everybody says, oh, did you see what so-and-so prayed? Jesus said, no. Go into your closet. Go into your bedroom. Go someplace where you all by yourself, and nobody sees you, nobody knows what you're doing except for God himself. You're talking to God. You're not talking to your neighbors. You're not asking your neighbors to make the kingdom. You're saying, God, you are my king. You are my Lord. Help me to be an obedient, faithful, willing servant. Rule my life, Lord, so that every day I acknowledge you. I never try to ignore you. I never deny you. I really want, Lord, to be your child, your subject, every day of my life. That's the first part that the Heidelberg focuses on. And then the second part says, keep your church, <coughs> excuse me, Keep your church strong and add to it. I don't know about you, but I sometimes get very depressed about the condition of the church in our world today. I know of three churches in Grand Rapids that this month have decided to close. They don't have enough people to pay the freight. They don't have a pastor who's willing to preach twice. They don't have any commitment. They don't need a second service. One hour on Sunday morning is great plenty. And <clears throat> the kids don't have to be there. We shut the kids off. Some of our churches are absolutely anti-biblical. Some denominations preach evil. And they preach sin as though it's truth and righteousness. Look at the Presbyterian Church USA, the one from which we sprang. Their main agenda is to protect and promote the LBGT agenda. And they're not the only ones. There are good, solid churches. Pastors who preach the gospel, preach the word like Pastor Bob does every week. And we have to pray that God would strengthen them. God would give those pastors courage and clarity and insight and a deep commitment. 
I know a number of churches, know some pastors personally, who are afraid to preach against sin because somebody is going to be offended and they might leave. So don't preach against sin. Don't name any sins. Just love each other. Just be nice to each other. Just tolerate everybody. Get along. Christ says, pray for the church. We met a lady last week and this week again who is very vocal Christian. Oh, she is such a strong Christian, such a believer in the Bible. I said, where do you go to church? I don't. Why not? I have no need for a church. I'm fine. I can read the Bible. The Holy Spirit teaches me. But no, you ought to go to church. No. Very adamant. She finally left, and I said, hmm, didn't win that one. That's part of praying for the kingdom, that the church might once again become strong. It's not only here in the U.S., it's in Canada, it's in Europe, a lot of places. Thankfully, by the grace of God, the church is starting to grow and become stronger in China, in Eritrea, in Kenya, in other parts of the world. But that has to be part of our prayer. The third part, and you'll notice, as I read through these a while ago, the Westminster Confession sort of flips these. And the Westminster Confession says, praying thy kingdom come means pray against Satan. The Heidelberg puts that number three on the list. Pray for individual growth, pray for the church, and then pray against Satan. Let me read that part again. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that in it you are all in all. What does that mean? I say it's a spiritual warfare, and God's word tells us we have to pray against Satan and ask God to overturn and overrule all of Satan's plans and every evil thing. I'm reminded of those words from Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles handy, just take a quick look at those with me. This is a beautiful passage, a beautiful chapter about putting on your armor. I'm going to read from Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers and this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day 
and having done all to stand firm. The spiritual warfare it is not a war so much between Republicans and Democrats, between conservatives and liberals, because within the Republican Party there's a war going on. There are many people within the Republican Party who are opposed to things that are biblical. There are many people in the Democratic Party who are opposed to abortion. They aren't in the majority. They don't have much voice, but they're there. We have too many in the Republican Party who are in favor of abortion. Which drives me to the next point in the outline. What are the major issues? What are the issues in this spiritual warfare on which we ought to focus and which we ought to concentrate? Number one, I would submit, is abortion. I try to always wear some little symbols just reminding people that these little feet are part of that whole birth process. If I have it there, I also have it on my tie clip. And people will often ask, what's that? Oh, those are baby's feet at certain date in the process. Really? Yes. That little baby is being formed in the womb. There are people, countless people, and according to some pollsters, 50% of the United States adults are in favor of abortion. 50%. When maybe 35% Americans consider themselves to be evangelical Christians, Within that so-called category of evangelical Christians, there are a lot of people who are favoring abortion. The Democratic Party has a platform. We must defend abortion at all costs. We have to do whatever possible to make certain that abortion is preserved and protected. Why were they so mad at Brett Kavanaugh? Why were they so mad at Trump? And Because he put a person on the court who is opposed to abortion, who is a staunch Catholic who says abortion is wrong. That makes many people just furious. We have to protect that at all costs. If it means getting violent, if it means getting rude, if it means getting vulgar, we have to do it. We can't lose that battle. And then you ask, why? Why? So many women who have abortions feel terribly guilty afterwards. They suffer from having an abortion. The pain is very intense and they can't understand why, but they're saying we've got to protect it. There's another dimension in our society and our culture that is it, in a real sense at the essence of this warfare. And I'll simply call it what it is. It's recreational sex. Recreational sex. Every young person, every adult person, has the right to do with their lives what they want, when they want. 
If you're a college student, after you finished your test or before you even got started studying, you've got to go to the bar and you might meet some handsome young man or the men go there and I might meet some delightful young lady and we strike up an acquaintance and before long you say, you know what, why don't you come on to my apartment? And then all of a sudden somebody finds out I'm pregnant. Oh, I didn't want to. You, you weren't careful. All that kind of stuff. So what do we do? Well, Planned Parenthood is just down the street a short ways. Go there. Take care of it. We have a niece who at one time had an abortion. Suffered years and years. Almost broke up her marriage. Tragic. She finally came to realize how wrong it was. What a terrible sin she had committed. But there's something else which is more difficult to define. But on your outline, you'll see it as number C. Democracy. We are fighting against powers and principalities, against ideas. Some of you have heard me say this before. I hope and pray that we never get a democracy in this country. We have never been one, and I hope we never become one. We are a constitutional republic. Our schools have ignored that. They've forgotten it. They refuse to teach it. Democracy says the people make the law. There is no king. We got rid of King George a long time ago. They got rid of kings in England and France and every other place. Kings are evil, bad. We are the lawmakers. We will only make those laws that we like. And we want to make a law that says it's perfectly okay to have an abortion. Somehow or other... In spite of God's sovereign control, the Supreme Court made that awfully stupid, ill-funded, ill-conceived idea that the Constitution protects a person's privacy and women can do what they want with their bodies. That's fundamentally wrong. That's anti-God. That's anti-Scripture. A republic like we have, this country because of God's direction. This country was founded on the law of God. The basic founders were primarily Puritan Christians from Massachusetts. They came with a clear understanding that God's law dominates and takes priority and precedence over anything that man might conceive. But from the very beginning, way back there in 1780, there was a movement saying, no, we don't want a republic. We want a democracy. We want to make the laws. The leader in that movement was Thomas Jefferson. And I get very upset when people idolize him because he is so anti-God and so anti-kingdom. That's a big part of what people believe. When you're told in your schools throughout the ages, you are your own boss, you are your own lawmaker, and you only have to obey the laws that you like. 
You're teaching heresy, something contrary to Scripture. How do you and I respond? What do we do? First of all, we have to recognize that everybody here, everybody that has ever lived anywhere in the world is a creation by God himself. Human beings could not be conceived without the act of God. Yes, there has to be a male and a female. We understand that. But we become the agents for God's creative power. Some of our mothers are pregnant right now. That's a marvelous kind of thing that's going on. We've had a number of babies, a number of baptisms here in this church. Thank God for that. When women say, this is my body, would they also be willing to say, this body was created by God in a marvelous kind of way? I, I marvel at the fact that at that moment of conception, when that sperm and that egg come together, God puts his law on the heart and mind of that very little baby. And from the day of conception, that is a person. That is a person. The Supreme Court decision made back there, Roe versus Wade, said that that's not a person. That's just some tissue. It doesn't become a person until it leaves the birth canal. Then it becomes a person. They said, if we ever discover that it's a person before that, then we're guilty of murder. That's in that decision. And they should have seen it, but they're walking in darkness. Anybody who says, this is my body, is not a Reformed believer. Most of us, many of us, I'm sure, grew up with the Heidelberg Catechism, that very first question and answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to him. He purchased me with his blood. I can't say this is my body, I am in charge. No, I have to recognize that I belong I'm a citizen in his kingdom, and hopefully by the grace of God, I'm an obedient citizen, not a rebellious one. There are too many rebellious ones around. You and I, I think, all recognize abortion is murder. We have to do something to get people to recognize that, to admit it. I've told people that different opportunities, and some of them get very angry. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. God says you may not murder. What do we do? How do you and I as believers respond? We might go back into the Old Testament and say, you know what? What God told Joshua way back there in Deuteronomy and Exodus is something that we ought to follow. 
God said to Joshua, I'm going to bring my people into the promised land. But that promised land is full of idol worshipers. Joshua, with your army, go into that land and wipe out every idol-worshipping people that you find. Destroy their Asherahs. Destroy their high places. Literally demolish them and get them out because this is a holy land. I cannot tolerate idolatry in the promised land. Now, some 600 years after Jesus Christ, there's a man by the name of Mohammed comes along and says, you know what? I was reading in the Old Testament, which he did, and said, those are the commands God gave to Joshua. They also apply to me. We have to go in and destroy all the idols that we find in our culture, in our society. At the time, they were living in Iran. And there were a lot of Christians in Iran, 600 A.D., and those Christians are worshiping Jesus Christ. And Muhammad said, that's idolatry. We have to go in and wipe them out. We have to go and do executions. We have to kill them. That's totally wrong. The Muslims completely misunderstand the Old Testament. During the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther was preaching against all of the idolatry and all the evils in the Roman Catholic Church. And thousands and thousands of peasants, not terribly well-educated people, laborers, farm workers, peasants, said, we have to go into the Catholic churches and tear down Mary. We have to destroy. It was called the Peasants' Revolt. Luther said, stop, stop. That's not what you're supposed to do as a Christian. Leave that in the hands of the authorities if they need to do something, but you stay out of it. And Luther was criticized sharply for it. Approximately 100,000 peasants died in that revolt back in 1524. You and I might be tempted sometime to join a movement and say, let's go find a Planned Parenthood facility and let's go harass it. Let's go burn it down. Let's, there are well-meaning Christians, misguided Christians, who've done that. That's wrong. What you and I have to do is to take that advice from Matthew's gospel and pray to God. Fervently pray, Lord, do something. Destroy the works of Satan. Destroy the works of the devil. All the evil in our culture, Lord, eradicate it. But how do we pray? I'm going to suggest that we learn to pray like David did in the last part of Psalm 139. And you might say, oh, we never read that part of the psalm. We love to read about the part that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, then we stop. But that's not where the psalm stops. David says, Lord, do something, and I want you to know that I hate this as much as you do. And then you and I react and we pull back and say, oh, no, 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 no. 
we cannot hate anybody or anything. We're supposed to love. That's a distortion of God's word. God hates evil. David recognized that. And he prays what we call an imprecatory prayer. There are a whole bunch of places in the Psalms, multiple, multiple places, where imprecatory prayers are uttered by God's people. And we say, ooh, and squeamish about that. I don't quite dare to pray that. But I would make that a matter of prayer. As that psalm ends there in the last verses of 139, search me, O Lord, know my heart. You hate evil, God. Help me to hate it too. Help me to respond, first of all, by trusting you. God himself is the one who will win this battle. Let's trust him. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, sometimes... We become so timid. We don't dare to express anger. Our society is so much in love with love that we don't understand. Help us, Lord, to see that loving our neighbor means caring enough about them and their eternal welfare so that we dare to confront them and say, stop, please stop. What you're doing is evil. Don't continue. Go to God in repentance and fear because he sees. And we ask, O oh Lord, that each one of us might be courageous in our faith, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and unashamed of these prayers that the psalmist pray. In Christ our Savior's name, amen.